Peter sits down with his friend Sylvanus or Silas to pin this letter. He's heard the reports of the goings-on in the churches around Rome, and he knows what they're up against. Persecution, confusion, separation from their old way of life. He dictates the first part of this letter, giving them encouragement, letting them know that, that God sees their suffering and their trials and that there's a purpose to it. But then he knows now it's time to turn to practical advice on how to live, on what to do. And as he thinks about what Jesus would say to those believers, his mind drifts to that one time on a mountainside many years ago. On that day, Jesus had gathered his disciples together, and he taught them, his disciples and the followers, the crowd, the way of life with God. How God had intended for our lives to be. And this new life, this new way that they could now have with God. I imagine Peter sat as close as he could to Jesus to drink in all the words and to ask questions or clarifications when he needed to, to insert himself. I mean, you don't get the nickname The Rock by sitting on the back pew. Jesus shares with them what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. And at that time, those words just sounded like a bunch of pretty statements to, a, to young men who were hungry for a revolution. But now as an older man... These words have come to shape Peter's life to the point where he can't find where Jesus' words begin and where Peter's words end. He encourages the church with the statement that Jesus shares in the Sermon on the Mount, Be holy as your Lord your God is holy. Words that Jesus spoke to a young Peter, green and fresh out of the boat. Let's read what else Peter shared with the early church and with us from the life and words of Jesus Christ. We're going to be in 1 Peter today, chapter 1, starting with verse 13. It reads, So prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So, you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now... You must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. And remember that the Heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time here as temporary residents. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ. The sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But now in these last days he has been revealed for your sake. Through Christ, you have come to trust in God, and you have placed your faith and hope in God, because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth, so now you must show sincere love to each other as, brotherly, as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all of your hearts. For you have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the internal living word of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
As Pastor Daniel shared with us last week, this letter Peter writes here is shared with Christians who are going through some hard times. They are newly converted and having to figure out from the very beginning what it means to follow Jesus but also be persecuted. I can't even wrap my head around it. I can't even put myself in their own shoes. I mean, baby Christians, people who just put their faith in Jesus Christ like yesterday, are now being physically, emotionally, and socially punished. How easy would it have been for them to go back on that decision? How tempting would it have been to throw up their hands and say, this Jesus thing is not working out for me? Peter felt that temptation, for in this first section, he tells the church to prepare their minds and their lives for action, to prepare for self-control. At this point in time, there was no religion, no political party, no socialist agenda, nothing that called for a radical change in living like that of becoming a new follower of Jesus, a Christian. The Romans, even the world, was used to a cheap religion, a cheap grace. They were used to giving lip service to a god, to an ideal, to a government, and then living however they wanted, that structure never really demanding them to alter their lives. So this Christianity, this Jesus thing, was a new way of thinking, and it certainly had a learning curve because letters were slow to circulate. You learned only as much as the oldest Christian had learned. You had to rely on word of mouth as the scriptures were not readily available to you. And the temptation was there. Everywhere they went, everything they did, the temptation was there to go back to their old way of living, to go back to their old lives where families were ruled with dictatorships, where slaves, other human beings were treated as animals, where greed was good and business was shady. The temptation was right there to give lip service to Jesus Christ and just live the life the way you wanted to live. To do what felt good to you and do whatever you wanted. That was the main thought of the day. It was called hedonism. Everyone bowed down to this thought and lived by this thought that you did what you wanted. You did what felt good. You did what satisfied your own desires. And you know what that thought did? As it circulated into the church, and it's even here today, it cheapened grace. Peter knew this temptation. But he also knew that this way of life that they were trying to navigate with, with worshiping Jesus, but then not allowing it to change their life. Peter knew that this was not the point of the cross. So he instructs the church to get ready, to be ready to act, to be ready to move, be ready to be transformed, be ready to continue in this new way of living. Don't be complacent in your old way of life and be tempted to fall back into those old patterns, but be ready to spring into action. Be ready for the gospel to claim your whole life. Be ready for God's love to change something. Be ready to live like God's grace meant something to you. The point for Peter at this point for his churches was to live a life that displayed just how costly Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was. To live a life that spoke to the power that the resurrection had. To live a life that demonstrated God's costly grace. We need these words now more than ever. We are in a similar position as the early church was. Except for one way, we are not being persecuted for our faith as they were. We in America have never had raids on our homes where our our livestock are burned, our fields are burned, because we follow Jesus. At least I never have in my lifetime. I've never been turned away from a restaurant because the owners knew that I love Jesus Christ. 
I've never gone into Walmart and been refused service because I was a Christian. I've never been beaten or broken or abused physically, even emotionally for that matter, because of my faith. We do endure some types of persecution, but it's a fraction of the persecution that the early church was facing. And it's a fraction of the persecution that our brothers and sisters overseas in China, in the Middle East, and in places where it's against the law to call on the name of Jesus Christ are facing. But we do feel the same temptation to act as if God's grace is cheap. To give lip service to a God and live life the way that we want to. To do whatever we want despite the sacrifice that was made for you. There is this movement that started. It started in, when our founding fathers came over. And I could, I could give you the whole history lesson, but I won't. Um, it started with our nation was built on Christian ideals and Christian beliefs. And this, this movement started with the belief that every Christian, every person who has accepted the grace of Jesus Christ should be a good and upstanding and loving person. And that's true. I mean, it's the heart of the gospel. You accept the grace of Jesus Christ and it changes you. But then suddenly, as our nation grew and some advancements happened and the Industrial Revolution happened and some other things in our history happened and we started getting more and more advanced, the beliefs were starting to change. They were beginning to get a little muddied. Suddenly, that assumption became every good and loving person is a Christian. It was this assumption that we were having because we were a nation based on Christian ideals. As, the, as years went on, the assumption became that every person that was good, if every person that was loving, every good upstanding person was a Christian. And this thought is rampant, especially in the South. Now, I, I love the South. I rate, I've been, I mean, if you count Kentucky as the South, I've spent my entire life here. Tennessee is not the deep South, but we still have sweet tea. And I was raised with this belief, with this understanding, with this assumption that everyone in the South was a Christian, that everyone in the South accepted Jesus' forgiveness and lived the way that Jesus is calling us to. I mean, I, I was taught that everyone in the South loves Jesus and loves their mama. But that's not the case as I grew up and, and, and came to see what real life was about. I've met a lot, a lot of good and loving and upstanding people, a lot of them. A ton of them, and I love them. But not all of them were people who accepted the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ, changed their lives around, and began falling in the footsteps of Jesus. Because being a Christian is not about just being a good person. Being a Christian is accepting the outrageous, expensive, costly grace of God evidenced on the cross and evidenced in the hope of the resurrection and changing your life because of that grace. Assuming the prior cheapens the grace and takes the sacrifice in the resurrection for granted. It's like the difference between Cool Whip and whipped cream. Now, I've only made whipped cream once in my life because, you know, Dairy and I just don't get along. And it took work. I mean, real whipped cream. I'm not talking about like the ready whip. I'm real whipped cream. It wasn't something that I just bought out of the fridge. I had to get the ingredients. You had to measure them out correctly. You had to whip it by hand. I mean, I didn't have an electric hand mixer at that point. So I was having to whip it by hand. And making whipped cream is, 
an investment. Making whipped cream kind of it demands your time, it demands your attention, it demands um, cleanup time afterwards, but the end product is something that's so satisfying, something that's so filling, something that's so rich and heavy and, and beautiful. It, it costs you your time, your resources, it costs you sore muscles, but the end product is something that you are proud of. But then Cool Whip came along. Cool Whip is a fairly new invention. It was um, made in the 1960s. It was marketed to the young 1960s housewives with their bouncy skirts and their, their little pearls. It was the whipped cream alternative. Their posters, their advertisements were, were touting, you don't even have to clean the beaters. And if we're going to be honest, Cool Whip is a cheap imitation of the real thing. It's a bunch of hydrogenated chemicals and chemistry compounds that are flavored to taste like the real thing but without any substance. Go, if you have Cool Whip, go read the back. It, you won't be able to pronounce half of those words because it's an imitation of the real thing. And the temptation for the early church was to have a Cool Whip kind of faith, to cut corners, to look like Christians to give lip service to Jesus, but to not let any change happen to them on the inside or on the outside. It was the temptation to have a shallow faith. It was the temptation to have an easy faith that was the imitation of the real thing. It was the temptation to accept God's grace without actually allowing it to change you or to step into that new identity that God's grace is supposed to give you. That's what Peter is trying to get this early church to understand. Grace costs someone something. If grace is extended to you, it normally comes at a cost to the person who is extending you grace. Think about the time that somebody has offered you grace, offered to pay a debt or, or forgive a debt. They are having to swallow that cost. That cost comes to them. You might not have had to pay it. You might not have even been aware of it. But there is a cost. Peter tells the early church and us, God's grace cost him. Peter describes it as a ransom. We have been kidnapped by our sin and our selfish desires. We have allowed sin and evil to take over our lives and hold us up for ransom. Something has to be paid in order for us to be set free. God didn't bargain with evil. He didn't offer gold or silver or land. God offered and paid our ransom he paid for you he paid your ransom through as peter says the precious blood of christ the sinless spotless lamb of god this ransom this grace it costs god and god did not pay your ransom flippantly he didn't just act and then think. This was a plan that God had in, put into to motion from the moment that sin entered the world and messed up what God had intended for us. Spanning thousands of years, God was putting together the puzzle pieces the only way that God ever could. With every action and every word and every proclamation that we read in the scriptures, God is setting up the stage so that his son could enter and pay the ransom for us. So that we could understand what grace was through a life that was given up for us. It wasn't cheap. It wasn't painless. It was something that hurt. It was something that, that, that 
was a, an expensive sign and show of love because that is how much God loves us. Because God was willing to give up anything so that we could be in a relationship with us, so that we could have grace and a new life. I don't know about you, but every year as I get older, the reality of the cross, the reality of God's sacrifice becomes more and more real to me. When I was younger, I just took it as a statement. Jesus died for me on the cross so that I could have a new life. Okay, yeah. But when I became a parent, and that first time watching Millie get hurt, how much it broke my heart. But then to think that God willingly put himself in that position, willingly sacrificed his son, watched him go through untold pain just so that he could pay our ransom, just so that we could have a new life. Grace didn't cost me a thing. I didn't have to pay a dime to be in a relationship with God. It doesn't cost me to accept God's love. I don't have to have a degree or put my house up or make promises. Grace does not cost me a thing. But it costs the person who loves and treasures me most in the world everything he had. And as a church, global and local, Peter reminds us to live our lives out in a way that is a testament to just how much God loves us. To live a life that doesn't take the cross for granted or the promise of an empty tomb as a childhood story, but to live a life that is now marked by righteousness and holiness and love and transformation that demonstrates God's sacrifice on the cross. If we were together in real life, I would show you a clip of a movie that demonstrates this point. But because we aren't, and there are copyright laws, I'll do my best to try to explain it to you. One of our favorite stories, movies, musicals is Les Miserables, or Les Mis. It's really long, so if you do watch it, settle in. There's a non-musical version and a musical version. This story traces the life of a former convict during the French Revolution. His name's Jean Valjean. In the beginning, Jean Valjean is in prison serving 20 years for stealing a loaf of bread to feed his sister's starving family. He's released, but he's finding that it's hard being a convict. No one wants to hire him. He can't eat anywhere, and it's hopeless. After days of being kicked out and searching, he comes upon this church. The bishop, the pastor, welcomes him into the church to stay, to eat, to get clean clothes, to get warm. He knows who he is, but he still welcomes him into his house. Valjean is bitter and hardened by the injustice continually shown to him. He sees the church's precious silver furniture, precious silver pieces, and he sees a way out. In the middle of the night, he gathers up the silver and he takes off. Guards catch him and bring him back to the bishop, and they mean to put him back into prison this time for life. But the bishop makes a choice. Instead of condemning him, he chooses to extend grace to a man who had never been shown grace before. He dismisses the guards, claiming that he gave them all to Valjean as a gift, and then he gives him even more silver, the silver pieces he's left behind. And in doing so, the bishop tells Valjean that he now has a choice. He has a choice to be raised out of darkness, to use this gift of grace to change his life for God, or to just continue on in his old way. This act of grace throws Valjean into a tailspin. 
It causes him to have a crisis of identity. Everything he had ever known had been challenged by this one act of grace, and in a defining moment, Valjean dedicates his life to God. He leaves behind his old life, what he calls the whirlpool of his sin, and he walks literally into a new life that grace had given him. He says, and this is one of my favorite lines, another story must begin. From then on, the movie chronicles Valjean and how he changed his life and how he is now a person who extends grace to other people. That is what Peter is trying to convey to the church and to us. When we accept God's grace, another story must begin. Another new identity, another new life, and it isn't something that just happens once. It's something we have to decide every single day. We have to decide to die to the stories of our past or, or what the world will declare is a cool whip kind of faith. We have to decide to let another story that be begin that de demonstrates the sacrifice of the cross and the hope of the resurrection. And that story is rooted in love and God's love for us and our love for God and our love for one another. It is easy to take what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross for granted. It's easy to have a cool whip faith. It's easy to accept God's grace and go on living and doing whatever we want, but that is not the plan. That's not why God did what he did. Just so that we could go back to our old way of life, God did all of this so that we could step into our new identity and new life with him. So Peter called them, calls us, let grace change you. If you're just now starting to follow Jesus, get ready. Prepare yourself to allow God to change you. Be ready to live a life that will demonstrate what God's grace can do. And if you've been following Jesus for years, let this be a tune-up for you. Where are you taking God's grace for granted? Where are you allowing yourself to stay in that past story with those old habits slipping back in that don't belong? How are you modeling God's costly grace and the transformative power to those around you? Peter reminds us, because of God's grace and the resurrection, another story has to begin for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the, the power of the cross. Lord, we, we know that we take it for granted sometimes, and we ask for forgiveness. Lord, as we go throughout this week, would you use your Holy Spirit to speak to us, to show us areas of our lives where we are settling for a cool whip kind of faith, the, the surface level imitation thing, and, and change us. Help us to step into that new life. Show us where old habits are slipping in and where we are uh, allowing the, the world, the, the evil, and everything to get back into our hearts. Lord, we want to live for you. We want to be a, a beacon. We want to be a, a microphone. We want to be a model of what your transformative power can do because of the cross and because of the resurrection. We love you. It's in your great and holy name we pray. Amen. Hear these words of blessings from Peter. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago. And his spirit has made you holy. As a result, obey him and be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And may God give you more and more grace and peace. Go in God's peace today. We love you and miss you.